Good morning. It's so good to see you. I uh, uh, had the privilege of being able to uh, uh, work in West Palm Beach this uh, last week uh, with uh, Jill's dad, Bill Robertson. And uh, I told Jill that it was absolutely miserable spending a week with her dad. Of course, I was totally kidding. Uh, Phil is uh, absolutely fantastic. I love being with him. Uh, we had such a, such a good week, and it was uh, just, just a real pleasure being with the church down there. The church has really grown in the years that Brent has been there. Uh, they're looking to uh, add on to the building now, which they would have done <laughs> until COVID crashed on them. And now they're looking back to be able to doing that, and uh, it was a real pleasure to be with them. Yesterday, I was with the church in West End in Bowling Green and got to uh, meet uh, Michael's brother, so that was fun. Uh, did a men's uh, series of lectures yesterday morning, so that was uh, really great. Uh, after all that, I have no idea if I'm, what I prepared is going to come out this morning. I'll probably uh, synthesize about seven different uh, lessons I've given in the last few days. No, not really. I'm, 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 I'm in. We're, we're, we're here, right? <laughs> Take a look in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The text that was read for us from verse 32 down to chapter 11, verse 3. Really, I, I, I think this text is a text that gives us an introduction to the famous chapter, chapter 11, where we always go to think about, uh, usually been called the Hall of Faith, uh, and all of the faithful of old and, and how that they are presented. Well, this section here introduces that. And again, what we need to do is see all of Hebrews 10, 32, through chapter 12 and verse 3 as one giant section. And that section is there to encourage us not to fall away. Uh, how many people have you known in your life who have fallen away? If you've been a very Christian very long, you could sit down and name them. You could sit down and go through so many and it's, it, it would, might be easy to say, well, they did it, but not me. But many of those people that you would think about that fell away, would you have thought they would have? Would you have expected that they would have? There have been people that I have known that have been very close to me that I was shocked when they fell and never returned. So this is good. It's good for me to study this. It's good for you to study this. It's good to understand that the Hebrew writer would not have said this to these people if it were not for the fact that they had been Christians for so long and it's unimaginable that they were on the brink of falling. So the, the, the beautiful thing about Hebrews is not that he comes along and decides, let me really thump you for, for not doing what you ought to do. That's not really what he does. He is completely throughout trying to show them what they're going to miss. And I hope you felt that theme, that this is what you're going to miss. And the motivation then is there. Let's take just a moment here to review a few of the exhortations that he gives that are reminders. In chapter 2, he urged them to pay much closer attention because they are 
They are serving a God who has now sent his message through his own son, who has come and has, is bringing us to this great salvation. He, he speaks of the fact that if you do not do this, you will lose the glory and honor that God has prepared for you, and you will end up like the people in the wilderness and you need to urge and exhort one another every day, lest you fall like those wilderness people did by that same act of disobedience. Furthermore, in chapter 5, he, he tells them you, you are on a verge of not being able to really listen very melody. You've just become dull of hearing. Have you ever thought about uh, being in a situation where you open your Bible and read it, and it doesn't make an impact on you. You just read it because, well, I ought to read. Uh, do you uh, come to a Bible class and you sit, and it's just, it's just not really entering your brain? It's just like bouncing off? He's telling these people that's the same thing. That's what's happening here. And he said, you're on the verge if you fall under those conditions you will not, no one will be able to bring you back. No one will be able to bring you to repentance. You will, you will in essence, have all of that on you. And, and it won't mean anything that anybody else tries to say to you because you would already know it. And then he goes on and urges them in chapter 10 that you need to draw near and hold fast and consider one another because if you go about deliberately and continue to deliberately sin, there's no more sacrifice. God takes his, the blood of Jesus is taken away from you and you would no longer have that forgiveness that you've had before. And then comes to the text that we're talking about this morning and he says in th verse 35 and 36, Therefore don't throw away your confidence or your boldness, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Endurance was the key. And then he sets up this, this uh, beautiful way of helping us overcome, and it is to live by faith. Easy thing to say. Live by faith. You ever thought about what does that really mean? And I, th I think this is the part of the Bible that probably does the best job in helping us understand what it really means to live by faith. I confess I don't think I understood it as well as I should have as I've studied it uh, in this past couple of weeks and looking for what he means when he turns their eyes to faith. That's what I want to share with you then uh, this morning. Uh, first off, you will notice in verses 32 through 39 here, especially uh, in, in the 32 through 36, he draws this contrast between their former days and how they are today. When you think about your former days, when you first became a Christian, do you see a difference from those days to today? Well, I hope in a positive way you do. They see a negative way. There was a way that when you contrasted the zeal they had in the beginning days, it was quite different than the way it was at that particular time when the apostles writing to them. You notice that he says to them, you had in verse 32 a hard, <clears throat> a hard struggle with sufferings. 
You were sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. You became partners with those who were treated in that way. You even had compassion on those who were in prison. And and one of the really interesting statements in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I always thought that was was pretty neat because he doesn't say you accepted the the plundering of your property. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. It would be like those, the apostles being beaten in Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. And, and he said they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They saw the connection they were having with Jesus. They saw the fact that what was on this earth didn't make any difference. And so they joyfully accepted the, the plundering of their property because they knew that they had something better that they were waiting for. Notice then that how did they get to that point? Well, he's already told them that. They got to that point because they didn't continue to press on to maturity. They didn't continue to be really good Bible students. They didn't continue to listen carefully. And they didn't continue to simply grow in what they should have been doing. Christians in every church fall into that category. Just, just kind of hit a level where they stop. So I urge you to think about that. Don't hit a level, a level of knowledge, a level of faith, a level of zeal, doesn't matter what it is. Don't hit a level where you just stop and just go, okay, I got this. I, I've hit the top of the roller coaster. Now I can just uh, hold my hands up and, and, and fly down. You know, that'll, that, that's it. No, don't do that because that's dangerous. You never really stay at the same place. You either push forward or you go backwards. And you've heard people say that a lot of times, but that's exactly what he is doing here in Hebrews. Notice these words here that he uses in verse 34. In the earlier years, since you, you, you did not endure, or you did endure, since you knew you had a better possession. Those who have faith, and then verse 39, those who have faith preserve their soul. How did they know they had a better possession? Isn't that an interesting word? You knew you had a better possession. Because you knew it, you joyfully took the plundering your goods. Well, how did you know it? Well, they knew it by faith. Have you ever thought about knowing something, and then somebody says, how do you know it? And you say, it's because of my faith. That's how I know it. And they would probably scratch their heads and go, that's that's not good evidence. No, it's not. Just because I believe it is not evidence in the sense that it's going to convince you. I believe on the basis of other evidence, but in this particular case, I'm using evidence in a different way. We're going to see that in chapter 11, verse 1. The reason I know this is going to take place is because I see something in my mind, in my my belief, that I cannot demonstrate by saying I can show it to you as well. I see the unseen. And God continues to ask us to do that. Now at first, that doesn't, again, that doesn't seem like that would be enough to help us overcome falling away. But if we have examined this carefully enough, it will. 
they were able to endure hard struggles, seeing friends go to prison, stand with them, the plundering of their property, because they knew something. They knew that they had something to come in the future. That's the kind of knowledge that we obviously need to come to. So uh, I want you to consider the three words that are used in verse 35, 36, and then down in verse 39. In 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. In 36, he says, I, don't, I want you to endure so that you can receive what is promised. What was promised way back in Abraham's day, promised by Jesus. I want you to receive what's promised. And then finally, in verse 39, those who have faith preserve their souls. As I was looking at those three words, this great reward, this emphasis on what is promised and being able to preserve your soul, the one thing I thought about was, look at, look at how little effort we have to put in to get such a great reward. You might say, well, it doesn't feel like a little effort. It's a lot of effort. Not in comparison to the reward. <laughs> the reward is so much more than what the effort. In other words, if God were going to pay us for how much effort we put in, do you think it would be what we're going to get? Nah. <laughs> no, no. I'd probably, uh, I'd probably get a, a, a little a hut in a corner somewhere that, if, if, if I was lucky. Uh, no, he, he has given this idea of this crowned with glory and honor in which all things are put under your feet, in which you're the bride of Christ, in which you are living before his throne. All of these things are said concerning the reward that we have, and yet at the same time, he says... Here, here's what you have to do. And we go, well, it's not even equal. What I'm doing is not equal to the great reward that I'm giving. So it, it is so cool just to see that in comparison, it's a minor effort. That ought to encourage us. I, I shouldn't be giving up because this is going to be something that is a reward beyond anything that I can even imagine at the moment, but that I can be absolutely sure of. This verse 37, notice his encouragement. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. Right in the middle of there, quotation from Habakkuk. And he's saying, little while. Again, that comparative, comparative point. You, the, I'm going to do something in a little while. The one who is coming will come. And you, this isn't something that's going to go on forever. Your, pun, your, your, uh, your, your suffering, the things that you're going through, is not going to go on forever. It's just a little while, and this is going to be taken care of. Now, there's two quotations that are given here. We just saw one in verse 37. The other quotation is in verse 38. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I, my soul will have no pleasure in him. So there is this... There is this uh, emphasis on two texts, one Isaiah 26 and one Habakkuk 2. 
And if we see the whole text, you'll see what he's saying here. So we're going to stop and go back then first to Isaiah 26. And I'd like you to read this. You possibly can to open your Bibles there and read this text. Isaiah 26. This is right in the midst. Uh, Isaiah's passage here is right in the midst of him talking about the the destruction that is going to come upon them, but how the righteous can stand even in the midst of God's punishment against the nations. So 26 verse 1, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city, he lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it in the dust. Notice there's two cities. The first city is in verse 1. The strong city, the second one in verse 5, the lofty, arrogant city. The lofty city is the city of the world. It's the world city. It's how the world operates. It's the enemies of God. The strong city is God's people. And he says he's going to tear down the lofty city, the inhabitants, the height. They're going to be brought down and laid low to the ground. But he said the strong city... He's setting up their salvation and their their walls like bulwarks. Notice what the city is built on. It's built on salvation. And the walls and the bulwarks are strong for them to have salvation. Notice especially the words in verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Here's where, here's where our mind, this is, this is what the apostle keeps trying to do. Focus our minds on what you cannot see, not on what you see. What you see discourages you. What you see causes you want to give up. What you see in this life, you're looking at the lofty city. You're looking at the city that's going to be destroyed. Why would you look at that and be depressed when you're in a strong city that has strong walls for salvation? If you put your mind on him, you will have perfect peace as long as it stayed on him. How many times have we used analogies like this just from Peter walking on the water? And as long as he was trusting in Jesus... He walked on the water, and as soon as he looked down at the waves and saw what was going on, he began to sink. That's where it always happens for us. We start looking at everything that's going around. We get freaked out. We think everything's going to just explode on me. I'm not going to make it. It's not going to happen. And yet, he's emphasizing here that's just not the way it is. Look at also Habakkuk. So Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12 through chapter 2 verse 4. I'm not going to read all of those, but I do want you to see see what he's doing in this text. 
Habakkuk has complained to God at the, at, in chapter 1. Habakkuk has complained to God of all the wickedness that is going on in the nation of Israel. God, why don't you do something about all this wickedness? Why do you make me see the injustices and the terrible sins that are going on? God's answer is, oh, I see it. <laughs> I see it quite well. I see it so much that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something you won't even believe if I tell it to you. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that hasty and powerful nation, and they're going to come and they're going to be indiscriminate about murdering everybody in this nation. And Habakkuk goes, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, you're a righteous God, you're a just God, and they're a more wicked nation than we are. How could you take them and punish us? If anything, it ought to be the other way around. And then Habakkuk steps back and he says, at least that's my position on it right now. I will wait until you rebuke me. Love Habakkuk's attitude. Uh, I know i got to be wrong somehow here, but this is where I'm feeling it. And so God then answers, and you can begin with me, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. <laughs> in other words, God says, Oh, it's happening. There is no question it's happening. You can write it on stone. You can give it to a messenger and have it send you. You will understand this is not going to delay. It is going to take place, which it did in a matter of 20 years from the time Habakkuk was writing. And then verse 4, and this is where the quotation comes from. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. His soul is puffed up. I would imagine by what is following in Habakkuk's text here that he's talking about first about the arrogant Israel, the lofty city, and the lofty city of the world. His soul is puffed up. He's arrogant. He thinks nobody can take him down. The Babylonians felt that way. Israel felt that way. He says all of them are going to be destroyed. But the one who's going to survive this is the one who is going to live by faith. That's what the righteous one. So what would you think that meant? If God says to you, I want you to live by faith, what is that really going to mean? It's not going to mean, oh, I believe there's a God. Uh, the unbelievers believe that. I, I want you to see you have to live by this standard of faith, and it means trusting something you can't see. Now, God just said, I'm going to wipe the nation, your nation out. They're going to come in and indiscriminately kill people. They're going to kill the, the, the old men. They're going to kill pregnant women. They're going to do all this destruction to you. All of this is going to take place. And Habakkuk's just like, what? If you do that, then what about the offspring? What about the promises? What about righteousness? What about all these things? None of it makes sense to him. And God just turns around and says, trust it. All right, so you know God. Is God going to do the right thing? 
yeah, I suppose he will. Then put your trust in that. You cannot see what the end will be. Now watch Habakkuk's answer at the very, the very end of this. Because the message here is that faith is the idea of not just assenting that these certain things are true, that there's a God, etc. It's a trust and commitment to God no matter what the outcome might be. Here's what Habakkuk's final words are in his prophecy. Habakkuk resigns himself to what's about to happen. He says his knees are knocking as he thinks about the Babylonian invasion. He's really scared. And yet he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no heard in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now please pay careful attention because Habakkuk is explaining what the Hebrew writer has given is shorthand words to tell us what faith means. Do you recognize here, he doesn't just say, if everything's wiped out and nothing is left, I'll just take a deep breath and accept it. That's not what he says. He says, I will take joy in the God of myself. And I will rejoice in the Lord. He is my strength. It doesn't matter if everything falls apart. Could you imagine what it would be if God sent a prophet and said, all right, folks, I want you to understand something. Within the next 20 years, the United States of America will be absolutely no more. By the way, that is a possibility. The abs- it, will, it will be no more. It will be gone. It will be utterly demolished. You will from that time on live out in any place you can stick up a tent. There will be no cities anymore. They will be gone. They will be completely obliterated. There will be absolutely nothing left. Anybody's knees knocking? (laughs) Yeah. But here's what Christians would do. They would rejoice in the Lord and the God of their salvation, knowing that no matter what would happen, He would bring them through it. Can't see it. Can't imagine it. Beyond my ability to even consider, and that was true with Israel. That was true with the prophet Habakkuk. Could not even imagine something would happen to God's city, God's people, God's Jerusalem. How could that possibly be? And yet, within 20 years, there was no Jerusalem. It was gone. Everything's torn down. Walls gone, temple gone, everything gone. And literally, people were just living out in the desert. There were no walls of any city left. You're just trying to get by. I was hoping for a lot of rabbits. Something to eat. Could we plant a fig tree? They're all gone. 
He says, even if it's just everything's gone, you're going to put your trust in God. Seeing what you cannot actually visualize or see literally is the idea of the faith that he is giving here. Now, let's refocus. This is what the writer wants to do. Just these next three verses of chapter 11. Refocus ourselves on what he's doing to introduce this list of great people of faith. First, he describes faith. Sometimes people say, here's the definition of faith. Well, not completely. But it is a description of it that he needs to use right here at this particular point. And so I'm going to give you three translations here. We see our ESV translation. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. NLT says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. That's a a pretty good understanding of that. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. The net version. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. And then the New American Standard Version. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, you might see that, and and, and I've noticed this even from the time I was young and started studying, that every version I would look at seemed to uh, translate this verse a bit differently. And that apparently is because of the struggle, and I've read a lot about more this week, the struggle that translators have had to try to get the concept across to us English readers, to get a concept of what this faith is. It doesn't sound right when you, when you say, well, it's faith is evidence of something, when it's not really that kind of evidence, as we've mentioned before. So what is he really emphasizing here throughout this? Look at these words here. Whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Look at these uh, words here that he gives in each text. First, the word reality. It is the reality of what we hope for. It is being sure of what we hope for. And then it is confidence in what we hope for. There is a reality here that we are so so consumed with and so much believe Even if we cannot see it, we understand that it is there. Do you do that with other things? Sure you do, all the time. In the South, one of the amazing things I've learned about the beautiful Southern people that I now love and adore is that uh, they love winter so many times. And of course, I grew up where there was no winter. Why would you love winter? It's cold. (laughs) I don't like cold. So I would always bathe in the great sunshine of spring and summer. And then when September hit, I went, oh no, it's coming. It's coming. So 26 years now, I have faced winter with a chill. I'm getting better, (laughs) getting a little better. Liking it sometimes a little bit better. But what's interesting is, is I find people, I don't find people saying, well, I hope winter comes. I don't ever hear somebody say that. They say, oh, good, 
Winter is coming. How do you know? You know by faith. But you are absolutely positively convinced of it because that is the order God put into place by speaking it. He just spoke it and it happens. He just said the words and there is summer and winter and spring. Oh yeah, there's a fall too. He has all of those things because he just said it. And you are confident. And Jesus will even, I mean, God will even in Jeremiah 31, when he talks about the covenant he's made with us, he will even say, as sure as the sun comes up and goes down, as sure as the seasons come, I will keep my covenant with you. That's the same thing. Now you can see how he can say, faith is, shows the reality of what we hope for. When someone says, winter is coming, you don't turn around and say, how do you know? <laughs> you don't say that. Are you sure? Well, yeah, pretty sure. <laughs> Boy, was I shocked when I got to Fayetteville, Arkansas. First week of December. It's nice weather. Ten days later, it snowed five inches. I sat in my um, office chair and looked out the window and I yelled at Andy uh, next door and he didn't have a window and I said you got to get over here. Andy had never left the state of California. I had left it but I'd never seen it snow. I'd seen snow on the ground if I traveled up in the mountains but I'd never seen it snow. And we sat in that window for two hours watching five inches snow down from the and we thought that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And then we looked down at our cars and went, uh-oh, how are we going to get home? <laughs> we didn't know how to do that either. If somebody had told me it's going to do that, I went, really? It seemed like a really nice day right now. I don't, I don't think it's going to do that. But they knew it would. That's how you know. That's how you know God is going to get you to the other side of this. It's like of course, that's what happens. That's how this works. Faith is a realization of what is still hoped for. It's an absolute confidence in what has been promised. One uh, Greek expert pointed out that in, the, in, in uh, secular ways, this term of realization or confidence or assurance is the word that is also used for a title deed in law. It's sure. It's like, okay, you went and bought a house, you put your down, your down on, you put all this in there, you signed all the papers, but you don't get to move in quite yet. Are you going to tell everybody that you bought a house or not? And that you're gonna, that's where you're going to live? Yeah, that's what you tell them. Because you have confidence in something that even though it hasn't happened yet, it is not a realization that it is already realized and in your own mind. Therefore, faith is the basis for hoping and anticipating something that actually exists even though it cannot be seen. I thought of a car dealership who, who was going to do a, a, a giveaway of a car. And all you had to do is go, every, just as many people want you just go down and sign your name, give your phone number and the whole thing and just put it in the box. And we're going to have a drawing. Whoever draws out, we're going, you're going to get a brand new car. 
And so I go down there and I fill it all out and I put it in the box and the, and the dealer walks up to me and he says, I got to tell you something, this is crack up. But some error took place and nobody has heard about this except you. And there's only one entrant into this drawing and it's yours and you just put it in and the time's up. Come back in an hour, we'll announce it. You win. I'm not coming back in an hour. I don't really believe that. You're going to come back in an hour? I'm coming back in an hour. <laughs> Hooray. I, I just hope it's not a Yaris or something. But that's what you want. It's, it's that realization. It's that which you have. The surety of faith is evidence of its existence as if it's already seen. Can you see? Can you see the glory and honor that's about to happen? In a little while. Can you see it with your mind? Every day when you're challenged with sin, when you're challenged with trial, when you're challenged with anything that comes your way, where are your eyes going to be? This is very difficult. Easy to talk about right here when nothing's really pressuring us that much. But can you see the eternal? That's what he's getting us to do. That's what Paul talks about as well. So hope now is given its biblical meaning. It is not a wish. It's not, I hope it'll happen. It's not, I hope, like maybe I'll win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. It's none of those things. It is a hope like, hey, winter's coming. And I have absolute confidence that that's what is going to happen. Then there's two, there's two statements here, verse 2 and verse 3. For by it the people of old received their commendation. You know, the first thing I thought about with that is these words by Jesus in Luke 13, 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. By the way, just stop. Do you want to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God? Yippee. But, this is what you don't want to see, you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south. That's us. And recline at table in the kingdom of God. The, the Jews put great hope in being able to be united with the people of God, the, their forefathers, in the kingdom of God. That's where they put their hope. And he says, you don't want to miss that. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. A lot of times when I do a funeral with somebody who is a Christian, and they have a lot of relatives that are not Christians. I will usually point out 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 that if you are a Christian, you do not grieve about your loved one who's died as others who have no hope. And I try to gently urge those who are not doing what they ought to do. If you want to see your mom again, if you want to see your dad again, if you want to see your grandpa or grandma again, or whoever it is, if you want to see them again, if you want to have the hope of that, you will live as they lived. That's what he's doing in Hebrews 11. You will live as they lived. And do you know, it is rare for that family member to change as much as they cry and moan and wail and, and think this is the most horrible thing in the earth, they're never going to see grandma again. And do you know they won't change? 
about 95% of the time? It's like we talked in class. Even if someone rose from the dead, you won't believe? No, because you don't want to. You simply don't want to. And then the second thing that is said here, the universe, verse 2, uh, verse 3 that is, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is a great conclusion. First off, the phrase by faith is used 18 times in chapter 11. This is the only time that he uses it concerning God and not what God does and not what people do. Everything, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith. In this case, it's by faith we understand the universe was created by the Word of God. The emphasis here is on the Word of God. The world was created because God simply spoke. That's all he had to do. He didn't start with something that already existed. He spoke and it came into existence. The Word of God brought everything into existence. Go online, Google that James has telescope and take a look at all the pictures. Google the Hubble telescope and take a look at all the pictures. And everything you see, God went, be there. He just spoke it. And that same word <coughs> by which he spoke, he brought the entire universe into existence and then uses that same word to give us confidence of our own salvation and that he will bring us to that heavenly land. If you can look up and see everything that's made and understand that by one word God brought it into existence, you should be able by that same way to see the invisible as if it were visible because you can see all that the promises were made. So the next time you think, I think I'll give up, just look around, look at the universe, look at the fact that with one word, God brought everything into existence. And that same word is what will bring you through this particular uh, time. We're going to sing a song right now if there's anything we can do to help you. We urge you to take that step now while together we stand and while we sing.